Our Father, again we come to you and we gather in this place to worship you and to hear the gospel, to remember the gospel, to, to proclaim the good news of the person and work of Jesus to one another in all that we do. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work making Christ known to us. Would you make known to us the heights and the depths and the width and the breadth and how great is the love of Jesus Christ for us this morning. Proclaim the good news to our hearts in a way that we can understand it, in a way that we can be moved by it, like stir our affections for you, God. And do it in everything that we do, in in our music, in in our singing, in the preaching of your word, in the teaching of our children, in running sound, and in everything that goes on here this morning. Would you make Jesus known to our hearts? Totally reliant on you, God. I know that my words fall short. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would would say what needs to be said to each one of us, that you'd have us hear what you want us to hear. Would you turn our eyes to you? We love you. We praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So we say, if you've been around church, if, if you know Christians, this is something we say, that God is love. We say God is love and that God loves us and so on and so forth. We go on a lot about God's love. And the question I, I'm asking this morning is, do we believe it? Do we really believe it? Like, I think that, like, surely we would all say, yeah, we believe that God is love. We believe, we believe that God loves us. Uh, we, we don't have total disbelief, for sure. We agree that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. I mean, if we're a Christian, we've, we've professed this is true, that, that Jesus died on the cross for our sin because he loves us. And so, yeah, God loves us. But while we believe it, I think at a head level, like we're willing to say yes to that, the question is really do we believe it at a heart level? Do we believe it in our hearts? Because the head knowledge, the the head belief, it just doesn't seem to, to move us. It doesn't really usually affect much change in our lives. That kind of belief comes from the gut. It comes from the heart. So how do we move a belief that God loves us from our head to our heart? That's, that's a question. How do we move a belief that God loves us from our head to our heart so it moves us? How do we feel his affection for us at a gut level that moves us deeply and that changes us? I realize that maybe I'm being a little presumptuous too. Like maybe I'm the only one with the problem here, but I definitely have this problem, and so I assume there's a few more of you. Maybe this is also a little bit too on the spot for you just to answer right away. And you're not sure how, you, how much you really believe that you love God at a heart level even. Maybe it's hard to discern between belief in the head and belief in the heart. And so this is to help us. Let's just ask ourselves. Ask yourself right now. How well do you love others? How well do you love others? How well do you love your family? How, love, how well do you love your spouse? How well do you love your children? We'll just start there. How well do you love your family, your spouse, and your children? Some of you may feel like you're, you're already passing the test with flying colors. Others of you, like me, uh, are already got a check in our heart, a check in our gut. How well, do you love your, how well do you love your neighbors? Like, not just the ones you like, but the weird ones, right? How well do you love your, your colleagues? How well do you love your boss? How well do you love your customers? How well do you love the person at work that frustrates you the most 
Or how well do you love the lonely person at work that nobody talks to? I ask these questions because 1 John 4, 7 through 8 says this. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So how do we know that we know the love of God at a heart level? I think it just shows up in how we love others, right? It shows up in how well we love others with the love of God. We only know God's love to the extent that we love others with the love of God. And this morning, it's my hope that we behold God's great love for us at a heart level. That's, why, that's my prayer this morning, that he would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, move our hearts to know how much he really loves us and what it means and what it looks like. That he would stir our hearts' affections for him. I believe that if we could catch a glimpse of the reality of God's love and affection that is set upon each one of us and, as, and us together, that we would be changed forever. I believe that. So today we're taking one final look in the book of Hosea. We've been in Hosea just for a few weeks, and today is the last day there. And as we've seen kind of over the last few weeks, the book of Hosea is split up into some, uh, some sections, uh, and each section uh, of Hosea repeats kind of the same pattern. We talked about that last week. Uh, number one, he indicts. That's how the sections will start. He, he makes an indictment. Number two, then he promises God's judgment and God's punishment. And then at the end, he, he brings a message of hope. Right? And that pattern goes through Hosea. He does that a few times, and each section is kind of split up like that. In today's passage in chapter 11, that's where we're going to be. If you don't know where Hosea is, it's one of the first books in the, the minor prophets. They're right before the New Testament. Use your table of contents. It's, not, it, it's fine. Don't be embarrassed about that. It's hard to find. Today's passage in chapter 11 is at the tail end of another one of these sections with that rhythm in it that includes these three parts of indictment and punishment and a message of hope. And it summarizes what has already been said and it it makes an attempt to really connect with people in a way that they might understand. Now if you remember, before we dive in there, if you remember back at the start of the book, we looked at Hosea's own marital relationship, right? Like God told Hosea to marry a prostitute. He married a prostitute under God's direction, and she was never faithful to Hosea, right? She continued to go after others. She continued to sell herself to others. She had two children by other men, and eventually she found herself enslaved by other men. But Hosea, who was obedient to God, loved her still. And Hosea pursued Gomer. And he ransomed her from her captors. And he took her back. It's a beautiful picture of how God, how God loves us. And then the book also started with, it saw him as a husband. It saw Hosea as a husband. and took a look at God as husband, really. But also, it had a picture of Hosea as a father. Like we can imagine how Hosea loved even Gomer's children as much as he loved his own. That he that he. That he loved Gomer's children that were not his own. Those who God had told them to name, no mercy, not my children, not my people. We can imagine that Hosea, though, still identified himself as their father, even though they weren't his legitimately. That he taught them to, to walk, that he provided 
for them, that he watched and that he raised them while Gomer abandoned them and went off into to prostitution. And we can imagine this is true because as God uses this, this family, of Hosea's family, to illustrate the, the relationship that he has between him and Israel, he says this in, in chapter 2, verse 16, that one day they will be called, that they will call God my husband, right? So we get that picture. And then in 2.23, he says that he would have mercy on no mercy and will say to not my people that you are my people. Everything in this book points to how God relates to his people. And it's accompanied by this picture of Hosea and his relationship with his wife and his relationship with his children. Hosea was a dad to no mercy. Hosea was a dad to not my people as much as he was a dad to his own child, Jezreel. And the picture painted of God in chapter 11, which we're in today, is one of a loving father to children that he cherished. Those who who once were not his own, but who he loved and who he raised as his own. So we're going to be in chapter 11. You can turn there. We're going to read just the first four verses right now. I'm going to read this for us. When Israel was a child... I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. That verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. I mean, that's straight up. He says it flat out right there. God loved Israel, his child. They didn't act like his people, but he loved them as his own. And then verse 3. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. I remember when my kids were were little and just learning to walk. Like we let them kind of squirm on the floor at first. Like we had one of those little square blankets that you have for babies. And they'd kind of squirm on the floor. And eventually they'd roll themselves over. Then all of a sudden they'd find themselves on their knees. And then they're kind of like doing like the rocking thing. And, and you know, and then they find their way to crawling. And then once they find a, figure out how to crawl. It doesn't take a whole lot of time before they're trying to climb on stuff, right? And so then uh, they, would, they would grab, like, the, the edge of the couch and, and just, like, strain with everything in them to, to pull up and to stand up. And I remember with, with all of them, reading this, it just brought the memories back so clear. I remember, like, reaching down to them, right, and letting them grab my fingers, like their entire hand would be around each finger because they were so small. And I'd let them grab my fingers, and then they would stand up, right? And then we'd walk around like this as I trying to teach them how to walk, right? And we'd walk around like that and trying to talk to other people. And, like, it's probably, <laughs> it's probably pretty goofy, but we did it, right? And then finally, they would, they would want to walk on their own, right? I remember it really vividly with Grace Noel. She's my oldest. I was sitting on one side of the room on the floor, and she was standing between my legs, and I... I had her up like this. She was standing up. And Claire was sitting on the floor on the other side of the, the room. And uh, Grace Noel finally decided she wanted to walk to mommy. Right? And she took the couple, first couple steps. And then all of a sudden she let go of my finger. And she walked a couple steps across the room. 
and then she fell into her mommy's arms. And we were excited. I have a video. I thought about playing it, but it is not uh, very uh, good looking for us. <laughs> but she falls into her mommy's arms, and she's so happy, and we're so happy. And every time it happened with each kid, we were so excited. We were thrilled for them. We were filled with love, right? It got us all emotional. It gets me emotional right now just thinking about it. But my kids don't remember that. They're too young to remember that. They don't remember that. And they don't know how our hearts, like, were leaping within us when we saw their first steps. They don't know how happy I was that they were holding my fingers and learning to walk. They can't know what love we had for them then. They just don't remember And this is the picture that God gives of his relationship with Israel. They don't know how he really is and how much he loves them and for how long he's loved them. But it was he who bent down and who cared for them. It was he who bent down and fed them when they were hungry. God took them up by their arms. It was God, their dad, who walked with them like that. And he loved them every step of the way. And his love didn't end there. Right? It's always easy, I think, for us to see God's love in the message of hope sections of the Bible, isn't it? Like those beautiful sections like that and the stuff that comes up where he said, hey, I'm not, it's not all bad. Like, I'm, I'm going to deliver you. We can, we can see God's love there. But his love isn't just in the sparing of his people. His love's not just in the teaching them to walk. It's also in the indictment. It's also in the punishment. It's also in the judgment. Like even in these first three, uh, first three or four verses that we just read, we see like the indictment, uh, it, it's already rolling out. Like they keep going after other gods, sacrificing the idols, going after the Baals. They kept wandering from their father. And so the next few verses, they don't seem so tender as those first. But I want to say that I think they're still filled with God's great fatherly love for his children. So let's read this. Hosea 11, 5 through 9, it continues. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Because they have refused to return to me, the sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Maybe the end of that we start getting it, but the first part of that is rough. And I think it's harder maybe for us to see the love of God in a passage like that and in this particular passage. But, but if we can see the love of God in the indictment and in the promise of punishment and in the promise of judgment, I think it might just change us. When I was a kid, I was, I was pretty bent on doing things my own way, right? Maybe some of you are the same. Some things take a long time to change. Some of them remain the same. I might still have a little bit of that problem but it's better. But being bent on my my way as a kid, feeling like I was always right, 
I tended to pop my mouth off a lot at my mom. Uh, and it led me to some pretty big battles with her. Um, and I, I mean, I have a mouth, and I still do, but, man, it was rough. I can't count the number of times I dug myself into being, like, grounded for the weekend or not being able to go do the thing that I wanted to do. She always would do the one, like, I was a part of a youth group, and she'd always do the one where, like, you're not going to youth group. And then I'm like, oh, you're going to keep me from Jesus? Like, you know, and then that would get even worse. Uh, <laughs> Like I dug myself into being grounded, dug myself into trouble, just because I refused to submit to my mom's authority. You did bad things too. I know you did, right? We all did. And hopefully you had a parent who would punish you when you were in the wrong. Like my mom didn't want me to grow up to be a jerk, so she punished me when I would pop my mouth off and say all the things I wanted to say. I only know now, like as a father, that that's really, really difficult to do. It's really difficult to discipline our kids. And I, I can already tell that it's going to become even more difficult than it is right now because right now it hurts for me to take like a toy away from my kid. It hurts for me to like put them in time out and make them stay there when they're like got big tears running down their face, even though I know they're, they're trying to play me, you know. It still hurts. But what about when the patterns of disobedience continue? What happens when kids rebel, when they're teenagers maybe and they rebel? What happens when they decide that they want to make their own way no matter what the results are? Like taking toys from teenagers probably won't do the trick, right? And sometimes parents have to let their kids go down the wrong path and deal with the fallout for their own good. Like the prodigal son, some of us, may have to let our kids go and like even waste their life and end up eating pig slop because of their choices in hopes that that will get them to a place where they will turn or they'll learn their lesson and find their way back home. It's hard to swallow. It's not something I want to be a part of. But a parent's love like that, that's a love that is intent on the ultimate good of the child and not just like out to feel loved by their child. It's a strong love. I've had some hard lessons to learn that way, and I'm sure maybe you've learned some hard lessons that way too. Uh, But I think we grow up to be thankful for parents who punished us and disciplined us in that way, and I think that God loves his people like that. And I know it's pretty easy to say here, like, well, that's pretty nice, but your mom didn't, like, let people run you through with a sword as was mentioned in Hosea. It's not quite the same. And you'd be right, she didn't. However, I I do think it's important. I think it's important that we remember and that we just notice and see that we're not talking about, in Hosea, we're not talking about an individual here. We're not talking about individual people. We're talking about a nation, about a group of people. Like, of course, people, I mean, they did die. Many people did suffer, but ultimately... What God is doing is God is addressing a nation as a whole. And the way to deal with the identity issues of a nation is to strip them of their false identity. And that means false powers have to be cut loose. That means that other nations will ravage them and strip them of their power. Here's the thing, though. It could have gone another way for them, right? It could have gone another way. They could have chosen to follow their father, God. And they could have relied on his power. But when they chose to follow the power structures of the world over God, 
This is what they were left to. It's because God's child, the nation of Israel, refused to return to him, refused to follow him, and were bent on turning away from him, that God gave them over to reap the rewards of their pursuits. His heart recoiled within him, this, this says. But sometimes doing the hard thing is the most loving thing. It's a tough way for a parent to love, but it's a greater love than spoiling a child because he can't ha- we can't handle the tension, right? And God's great fatherly love for his people meant that he was willing to punish them and willing to enter into that tension because of how much he loved them. And then we just read it, but 11, 8 through 9, we, we see the reality of that loving fatherly tension like aroused in the heart of God himself. We see the heart of God on the other end of the rod that punishes the child. Let's read it again, 8 through 9. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. This is the message of hope that Hosea begins to unfold. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. His compassion grows warm and tender. He will not completely destroy his people, for he is God and not a man. But hear this, God isn't going back on everything he just said he was going to do. We don't want to get that wrong. They're going to endure punishment. They're going to be disciplined. But God still loves them deeply. And God, their father, is still at work in them to make them who they ought to be. And all the promises he's made, he's going to keep those. He called them out of Egypt. It begins in verse 1. He called them out of slavery to be his own people. And he's not going to send them back there, he says in verse 5. They're going to reap the rewards of turning away from him, of refusing to return to him, but it'll be in the hands of Assyria. And it's going to hurt, but it isn't the end of the story. Their father, their God, who chose them, who set his great love on them, is tender and he's full of compassion. He's faithful even when his children aren't. And he promises that he's not going to destroy them entirely. They won't take the full brunt of his wrath. He's God. He's not a man. He is the offended, not the offender. And because of that, nothing will prevent God from renewing a broken relationship that they broke. The promise rolls out further. 11, 10 through 11. The final couple verses of this passage. It says, They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Just one day, On the other side of this punishment for Israel, God's children will turn and they will go after him. They will find their true identity as children of God and they'll return to him. They will see him rightly and they will long for him. And when he calls like a roaring lion, they'll come home to their father. You know, it's easy for us to to get it all wrong. Like to read these passages like this and and see God wrong. Like the indictment and the punishments are often 
I think they're often obstacles for us because they, they seem hard. Like that's not exactly how we would see love. It's not quite as warm and tender as he, I mean, he says it's warm and tender. I don't know. It's hard to see there, right? But Hosea's book is filled with this imagery of a husband and wife and of a father and child relationship because I think it's how God wants us to see him. Like God knows that we can maybe best understand, even if in some blurred type of way, that the personal, we can understand his personal, caring, intimate love for us through these human relationships. And Hosea is working really hard to let us in on the mysteries of God's great love. And I, I'll tell you why. It's because if we can catch a glimpse of God's love and affection that's set upon each one of us, it'll change your life forever. It'll change your life forever and for the better. But it can still be easy to miss the point and to see God's love wrong. It can still be easy to see it wrong because even these human relationships can't help us totally get it because our human relationships are broken, right? Our, relation, our human relationships aren't perfect. In fact, many are straight up a mess. They're broken. I have some of those. Maybe you haven't known the love of a father. Maybe you haven't known the love of a mother. Maybe you get the sense that even your spouse wouldn't come after you if you were in trouble, especially if it was because of something you did. Maybe your experience in this life has taught you that you are even unlovable because of something you've done or because of something that you haven't achieved. I've felt that myself. And truthfully, I think that it just leaves us either like grasping to earn love from somebody, somewhere, desperately working to achieve something that will finally have us called mercy, that will finally have us called my people, you are mine. Or it leaves us without hope, and it leaves us alone, and it leaves us in despair. And then we try stuff with God. If, if we seek his love, we, we seek it through trying to earn it back somehow. We try to achieve something that will make him want to call us his child, that would make God proud of us. And then we love others the same way, and it's like this cycle that doesn't work, and it doesn't end, and it, it's just not the way. And God's love isn't like that. God doesn't just love those who have never sinned. Listen, God doesn't just love those who have never sinned. He has loved sinful people from way back in Genesis. And he will continue to love sinful people. That's good news for us. Paul says in Romans that it was while we were still set against him that Christ died for us. You can't earn his love. I mean, how can you earn a love that was set on you since the foundations of the world. You can't earn that. It was set on you before you were ever around. This is what I want us to get. God's love has been coming after you. It's been coming after me. It's been coming after us. And actually, it's been coming after the whole world for millennia. And it's perfect. And it's free. God's love, He loves us with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's how Sally Lloyd-Jones writes it in the Jesus Storybook Bible, and I love that. God's love is never stopping. It's never giving up. It's unbreaking. It's always and forever for you. In Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, 13 through 15, 
It's the first book in the New Testament, first of the Gospels. It's part of the Christmas story. And this picks up just after the wise men left. And it says this, it says, Now when they had departed, that's the wise men, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew, of course, is pulling from this very passage we just read, verse 1 of chapter 11, when he quoted Hosea saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. And it's a really odd interpretation according to the way we understand it, right? I mean, we just read the passage. And it's clearly talking specifically about Israel. It's clearly talking about God calling his people out of slavery, calling them out of oppression that they were under in Egypt. It's pointing to when Moses led the people out and into the wilderness toward the promised land. Like when you read it, it doesn't seem like a prediction as much as a remembrance, right? But Matthew sees that there is more to it. He gets that Jesus, that God's Son, has taken the place of Israel. That he represents the people as a whole. And that the very Son that was called out of Egypt and led into the wilderness by Moses, the nation of Israel, that that very people who've been exiled and without a nation for centuries at this point, they are still alive. They still exist in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Matthew sees how the message of hope in Hosea has been realized in Jesus. Israel did suffer, just as promised. They were punished, but they weren't utterly destroyed. And in Jesus, Israel is alive and well. And it's, it's no... It's not like a a singular nation that he calls his people anymore. It's not just Israel. And America is not God's chosen people. It's the church. People from all nations, from all tribes, in all tongues. We are his people. We are his child. We have been ransomed by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And God's great love for his child is still burning with a great passion and is set on his people by being set on Jesus Christ. This is what I want for us this morning as we wrap up this book of Hosea. It's all I've really wanted throughout the whole series, actually. I just want us to behold Jesus as the fulfillment of these promises in Hosea, as the grown-up child that has returned to the Lord. I want us to behold in Christ the perfect picture of God's intense love for us, a love that has made a way to restore right relationship between God and you, between God and and me, between God and all of us. Do you get it? Like God set, in the beginning, God set his love on the world that he made, and it turned away from him. But even with his broken heart, his love was set on the world. He set his love particularly on Abraham for the purpose of making a people that would make him known and make his love known and loved by all the nations. Those people, they ended up in Egypt. They ended up enslaved. They ended up oppressed. But they also ended up large in number. And then God delivered them. 
and he was kind to them, and he was tender with them. He made them a nation so that, and for the purpose of showing the nations who he is and what he's like, so that he could show the whole world the great fatherly love of God. And he raised them up like a child, and they turned away often. He disciplined them. He punished them. He let them go on their way and reap what they had sown, even though it broke his heart to do it. He let that tension happen, but they were still his. And his love was still set on his people. And his love was still set on the whole world. And it was still set on you, and it was still set on me, it was still set on us, and he was still coming. He wasn't done showing his great love, so God sent his son. This is the gospel, this is good news of Jesus. God sent his son. God became man, and he was born into the line of King David. He inherited the promises of God that were through David, that God would bless the nations through David, and that he would set up a throne and a kingdom where one of David's heirs would rule forever. He was born into that line, inherited those promises, and Jesus inherited all the promises of God through all of Israel's history, and he knew God. And he loved God as his father. And he loved Israel as his son. And he loved the world enough to die for it and show the ultimate expression of God's love. John 3.16, you know the verse. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. His love is deep. His love is wide. His love is historically big and incredibly intense. It's beyond words. It's beyond expression. I think that's why in 1 John 4, 8, it just says God is love. It just simply says God is love. Like whatever love truly is, God is all of that. And he's been coming after all of us. He's been coming after his kids. He's been coming after you, his child. You are beloved and you are cherished by God. And to catch a glimpse of God's love and affection that is set on you, I believe will change your life forever. So as we finish up Hosea, I hope we see God for who he is, our great loving father. He held you by the hands and he taught you to walk. He sent you to your room when you needed to be disciplined. He's let you learn the hard lessons, although it was hard for him to watch. He's still there with open arms to pay your way back from the depths of your brokenness when you're ready to return home. And he's calling you to himself. He's calling you to submit all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ. We say that a lot around here. That's what we think it means for you to be a disciple, to grow up as a disciple of Christ, that you would submit all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ. And so the invitation this morning, and this is how we close, I just... Let's just behold him. Let us behold him. Let us worship him. And let us fall into his loving arms together continually. Let's do that as we worship together. We're going to move into a time of response as we do each week at Redemption Church. And during this time, the band will come up and they'll lead us in some songs where we can sing of this great love that God has for us and sing love back to him and worship him together, remembering the good news of Jesus Christ who's made us this family and who's ransomed us and who's called us his own. So let's do that. It's a time for you to reflect and pray as well. Just think about his big love.
it's a time for us to, to gather and, and to give through tithes and offerings and to worship him in that way, to trust him and saying, you know best, God, and everything I have is yours. You can do that back in the back. There's a basket. There's information on how you can give other ways as well. And each week we come and we take communion. And you can do that. You can come down each one of these aisles. There'll be people serving. We'll take the bread, which represents the body of Christ that was given for you. We'll t- dip it in the wine or the juice, which represents his blood that was shed for us. And in doing this, we remember together the good news of Jesus Christ. We remember that he is who he says he is, and that means that we are who he says we are, which is beloved. And as we do that and we remember it, we proclaim it to one another. right? We proclaim it to one another, helping each other remember. And we see how he has unified us through the person and work of Jesus Christ and how we are his body and how we are his child together, the people of God, the church. That's a beautiful thing to, to, to witness and to, to think on. So if you're a Christian, whether you're a member of this church or not, we would call you and ask you to, to come and take with us. Remember Christ with us this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we'll move into that time together. Our Father, just thank you that we are your kids. Thank you for how you love us. Lord, I just, I just ask that you help us this morning behold that love, that you help us to, to see it. I can't express it. None of us can. Not enough. I, I ask that you, you hold our hearts in awe of your great love for us. Lord, help us not just believe that these things that are in the Bible happened, but like help us feel it in our heart of what it means. That you love us that intently, that you care that much. That you are jealous for us. Oh God, you love us. Would we get that this morning? Would it change us forever? Would we love you and would we love people the way you love them? In Jesus' name, amen.